So the passage today, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. I have been uh, gone for a few weeks, and I'm excited to be back and jumping into our book of Acts study. We have a very short passage, but it is a very complex passage with lots of layers of stress. The title of the message today is How to Be a Unity Maker, Acts 21, verses 15 through 31, and it is a complicated, stressful passage of Scripture. So just a little bit of background for those of you who either are visiting with us today or haven't been tracking with our series. We've been working through the book of Acts, and we're nearing the end of the book today. The Apostle Paul is just finishing up his third missionary journey. So back in Jerusalem, in the country of Israel, that's where this whole Christianity Jesus thing started. And there are Christians who are in Jerusalem, but then Paul and some people that he developed went out into Europe and Asia, and they have been taking the message of Jesus all over the place. So Paul has been doing all these missionary journeys for years, and now he's finishing his third and final missionary journey recorded in scripture, and is getting ready to return to Jerusalem. And as we discussed in in a few previous weeks, Paul had received several prophecies from other believers saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for you. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, the only thing waiting for you there is persecution. And yet Paul felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to return. And so that's where we are today. Now, I'm going to read this passage carefully and slowly, and I'm going to stop repeatedly throughout the time to just make some comments along the way. Acts 21, verses 15 through 31, I'm reading from the NIV. After this, we, that's Paul and eight of his companions, got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So Manasin is, must be kind of an interesting guy. He's from the outside himself. He's not originally from Jerusalem. He's an outsider from Cyprus. And, uh, and he decides he's going to provide the hospitality for these people who are traveling. Now, this is a large group of people. I mean, think about having nine house guests in your house. And the thing that's so unique about this particular group is that Paul's group is a combination of Jew and Gentile believers. And if you've been following along in the book of Acts, you'll know that simply Jews having Gentiles in their home is a really big deal, and Gentiles having Jews in their home is a really big deal. So Manasin must be a special kind of guy who is prepared for this and understands the kingdom and understands the bigger picture of what God is doing. So they all stay with him. Already this noteworthy action of hospitality and unity making. So they go to Manasin's house. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem... The brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Now, James is the pastor of the main church in Jerusalem. This is Pastor James of the First Church of Jerusalem. This is the main gathering of Christians in the city. Jerusalem is this intensely crazy place, intensely political. There have been tons of people who've been martyred. You read about the the martyring of Stephen, one of the early disciples in Jerusalem. Uh, Christians are being persecuted like crazy. Uh, There's a famine that's been going on. It's been a really crazy time. And James is the pastor of the church here. This is James who's the brother of Jesus, not James the apostle who traveled, not one of the 12. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who also wrote the Gospel of James in the New Testament. That's this guy. So if you want to see what Pastor James was teaching his people, read the Gospel of James. 
So Paul and James are two representatives of two major groups of people. James was holding it down with the Jews and some of the Gentile believers in Jerusalem and in like this center of where Christianity came from. He's holding it down at home. Paul, meanwhile, is traveling to Europe and Asia, and he's the one doing all the missionary stuff, and he's primarily functioning in the non-Jewish world, even though there are some Jews out there, but it's the Greek-speaking Roman Empire, and Paul's traveling in that area. So these are two huge leaders of the Christian movement. James at home in Jerusalem, Paul out and about building the, the worldwide church. So Paul and James meet up together in this passage. Interestingly enough, they haven't spent a lot of time together. In fact, the Apostle Paul doesn't even meet James until after the Apostle Paul's been a believer for three years. So just they're, they're finally spending some time together here. Verse 19 continues, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. They said, they said to Paul, you see, brother. Oh, let me just pause there. So they, they hear what Paul says, and they say, this is great. We can't, this is incredible what God is doing among the Gentiles, what God is doing among the Jews that have been spread out into Europe and Asia. This is incredible what God is doing. And then they change the, the flow of the conversation, and they say, let's talk about us. Okay? And so they, in, uh, in verse 20, then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed here in Jerusalem, they're saying, and all of them are zealous for the law. So, th so James and the elders with him, they're saying, great news, Paul, about your travels. Let's talk about what's going on here. We have a lot of Jews who've become believers in Jesus. That's great. But, they say, they are zealous for the law, which sounds like a good thing, except in this particular context, it's not. These are Jews who are believers in Jesus, but who are also holding on very tightly to the Jewish law, and they're trying to say, in order to be a Christian, you have to do the Jewish law and have faith in Jesus. And they're saying you have to do all the Jewish stuff in order to be a Christian as well. And so, and so they're saying there's some tension here, there's some things going on. Verse 21, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Let me stop there. So, th so they're saying this is a problem because we know that you like the law, you're a friend of the law, you wouldn't but you just tell people you don't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And they're saying, they're, you're, they're saying all these fake things about you. So they said, verse 23, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Okay, now what's going on there? So, so they're saying, you, we know that you're friendly to the Jewish law, but that you don't believe you have to live in the law in order to be a believer in Jesus. But they don't know that. And so in order to help them along, in order to help them understand and to just kind of try to smooth the waters and try to just keep an open door, let's prove to them that you are friendly to 
the Jewish people, you're a Jew yourself, you're friendly to the Jewish people, and you're not anti the law. So here's what you're gonna do. We suggest that uh, there are these four, four Jewish believers, they, they made a special vow to God, and they've consecrated themselves. It was probably a Nazarite vow, for those of you who are familiar with that. They probably made a 30-day commitment, and it's simply a vow stating their dedication to God. It's just saying, God, I wanna be closer to you, I wanna follow you, and I'm just, I'm so, totally sold out and abandoned to you. And at the end of that 30 days, part of the, the, part of the ritual to mark the end of that vow was to have their heads shaved. And there was a, a fee that you paid at the temple, and it was all part of the sacrifice. And so they said, Paul, you go with them, you pay their fee, and by associating with them, you'll show that you're supportive of them, and you are, that you are friendly to the Jewish law, and that will prove to people that you're not doing the things that, they, you're not doing all the things that they say that you're doing. Paul hears about this, and he's like, that works for me. I can do that. That's not a problem. I, I don't have conflict about that. And then James goes on to say in the next verse, in, cha- in verse 25, he, he changes the subject yet again, and he then refers to a situation that happened earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, in which the Jerusalem church was relating to the Gentile church that Paul was leading out in Europe and Asia. Verse 25, James says, As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Okay, now maybe once again you're thinking, what's going on here? They're referring to what happened back in Acts chapter 15, when again there were these Judaizers, people who were very committed to the law and trying to hold the law and Jesus' intention, who were saying, in order to become a follower of Jesus, you also have to become a Jew. So Gentiles, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew and a Christian. And Paul says, no, you don't. And so Paul and James and Peter and a bunch of the other disciples sat down and they had what happened in Acts chapter 15, which we now call the Jerusalem Council, and they made up these rules. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We don't want to be a stumbling block to people, but we also want to make sure that people understand the freedom that Jesus gives us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give four guidelines, and we're not going to ask the Gentile believers to do the whole Jewish law, but we are going to ask them to do these four things. And then they list off the ones that food sacrifice to idols, sexual morality, and, and all those things. And so this helps to define the shared expectations among the two groups, and it helps to promote unity. It was a way for the Jews in Jerusalem and the Greeks out in Europe and Asia to say, okay, we can do this thing together. We can do unity together. So James here in this passage is telling Paul, hey, Paul, just a reminder, this is what we did, and these are efforts that we've made to promote unity between all these groups. Passage continues in verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, these are outside Jews who came from far away, saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd. Now, back up one more interruption here. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Paul was somewhere, and these outside Jews, these were not believers, but outside Jews tried to stone him, and they left him outside the city gates for dead. Perhaps you remember that. They literally followed him here to Jerusalem. Same group of people. 
They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, verse 28, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. The exact thing James was trying to avoid just happened. Now next week we're going to talk about what happens to Paul and his arrest and and where that goes. But today I want to look at what's led up to this point, to this, this meeting that has happened between Paul and James, to these conversations. There's a lot going on in just a few verses, a lot of stress, a lot of challenges, a lot of wrestling that's happen, happening. Um, I'm going to need seven volunteers to help me uh, just show what's going on here. Can I have seven people come up and help me with some things here? Hold some posters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Great. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, so I want you to see all the different groups of people at play here. So you, you guys are going to be Europe and Asia. You're like the whole Roman Empire other than Israel, okay? You're the whole Roman Empire. So Phil, you are representing... In the scripture, it talks about the Greek-speaking Jewish believers. So there were Jews more than in just Israel. I mean, in Israel we had the Jews, but there had been Jews that lived all over the Roman Empire. But they were Greek-speaking Jews. They were a little bit outside of the the Jerusalem scene. So there are Greek-speaking Jews. They hear Paul preach on Paul's missionary journeys, and they believe Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So they are Greek-speaking Jewish believers. Then also out in Europe and Asia, we have the Greek-speaking Gentile believers. They also hear Paul and his missionary journeys, and they're like, we believe in Jesus too. This is what we've been waiting for. And so these two groups of people, I mean, they're pretty different from each other, but but they, they come together and both are believing in Jesus. So uh, Elizabeth, you're going to be the Apostle Paul, and go ahead and you hold on to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers because Paul is teaching them how to be church together, how to be unified, because they're figuring this out. They're like, hey, we know how to be Jews, but um, you don't have to be Jews, so how do we be Christians together? So Paul is holding this group together, teaching them how to be the body of Christ together. Meanwhile, we have, we're back here in Jerusalem. If you want to spread down here a little bit, Will. Uh, we've got believers who are in Jerusalem. This is James's church. This is where Christianity first started. This is where Jesus was. We've got people, we've got the Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We've got all the 12 apostles. I mean, this is where they all, this is where they all were at one point. So we've got those believers. And as we talked about in our passage, we have, you can go ahead and stand by Will, because you're in Jerusalem too. We have Liz, right? 
Lexus, that's right. Uh, believers in Jerusalem, zealous for the law. Remember, we just talked about them. So they're also believers. They believe in Jesus, but they're holding on a little too tightly to the law. So then we've got James over here. Lankeo, you can be James, and you, you, hold on, you hold on to his elbow and her elbow, and you're, gonna, you're holding them together. You're, James is like, hey, I'm the pastor here of this church, and I'm like, we're just trying to hold it together here. Like, we've, my church is crazy. Like, they've got these people believe in this, and these people believe in that, and I'm just, I'm just trying to bring unity here. I'm just trying to rein these people in, and I'm trying to keep these people focused on the right things, and, and uh, James, you're just, you're just holding it together there. Well, then, sorry, Gabby, you have to be the bad guy. Um, then we have that group of Greek-speaking Jewish non-believers. And I forget what city they were in. I don't know if it was Ephesus. I forget what city they were in, but they were, uh, they were way far away in Asia, and they got so mad when Paul preached there that they ran him out of town. Paul went to the next town and started preaching there, and they followed him there, and then that was where they stoned him and threw him outside the city gates. And here they are, back again, here in Jerusalem. You can go over there. Just go to Jerusalem. Causing trouble. Just go cause some trouble, Gabby. Yeah, causing trouble. So these are not believers, but it's this fifth group. So here we have this, like, stressful thing of building this church where so many different people, and, and when I talk about Greek-speaking Jewish believers, Greek-speaking Gentile believers, there are many countries represented here, many languages, many cultures, many ethnicities. I mean, this is Europe and Asia we're talking about. They're just trying to figure out, how do we do this thing together? We have all these different cultures and languages and everything. And then there's James over here trying to hold it together, and they've got their own issues. And then this outside influence on top of everything else, creating all of this chaos. So uh, give me a little... Look like you're having chaos here. Give, give, give us a little chaos. This is chaos, people. Chaos. Gabby, remind me to stay on your good side. <laughs> okay, okay, so we have these five different groups, and they are not necessarily, well, you're at odds with everybody, but the rest of the groups aren't necessarily at odds with everybody, but they are very, very different from one another. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your help. Lots of tensions. So what happens when tension hits the church? What happens when tension hits the church? What happens when the church becomes a place of stress? When maybe being part of a church is the most stressful part of your life, like it was for these Christians. What happens when the church becomes a place for drama? What happens when people who don't look, talk, smell, act like you come to church, and then they have opinions about everybody else and how they do church? What happens when church is messy, complicated, ugly. I'll tell you what happens these days. You've heard these stories too. These days people say, look at this mess. I'm out. 
this church is full of ugly stuff, that's enough for me. There are hypocrites over there. Well, we have these Jews who love the law, who are zealous for the law, who are like, they're hypocrites. And we have these people in the church who are saying, they're legalistic. And they're saying, we're right. And they're saying, we're right. I'll tell you what people do. You, you've heard these stories too. They say, I don't agree with the church's beliefs, so I'm out. Or even more commonly, I don't agree with the church, with what the church believes, so I'm going to go find one that, make, that fits my beliefs. People say, I got hurt by the church, so I'm done. The church asks for too much. All they want is money. And there's been an offering going on here that we're going to be talking about too. And then today, when people leave churches for those kinds of reasons, maybe it's just my social media feed, but maybe your social media feed looks like this too. Then those people go out and publicly say, here's why I left the church. Ten reasons of why I'm done with church. Five reasons why I'm not a believer anymore. And people applaud them. Our society applauds them and says, way to leave, way to pursue your bliss, way to get rid of stress. Church shouldn't be stressful, it should be peaceful. Way to just get all that out of your life and just leave all that stuff behind. It's so toxic, you, shouldn't, you don't need to be part of that kind of messiness. Church shouldn't be so messy. The problem with that mentality is that the entire church that I see pictured in the New Testament is a messy complicated church. The New Testament consistently presents the church as a place of growth. And anywhere you have people who are growing, you are going to have people who are messy. Anywhere you have people who are changing, you're going to have people who make messes. I also see in the Bible that being a Christian means you're, you're, you're open for persecution. If you're a witness for Christ, you're, you're open to be challenged. You're opening up yourself to people to make fun of you, to challenge you, to question you. We don't think that way here in America. We think if I'm being challenged, then I'm, I'm out. But the scriptures show us being a Christian means that you literally don't fit with the culture, and there's going to be a clash. The New Testament church shows us that the body of believers is this place of radical diversity. It's this place where people of many languages and cultures and traditions are all coming together in unity. In city life, that never happens without some stickiness in the process. We like this idea of uh, there's Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes down on people in tongues of fire and enables the people to speak in languages and there's this beautiful display of diversity which is really, really awesome and a totally a Holy Spirit moment. But you know what happens after Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 21, 22, 23 where they're trying to figure out all the craziness of what that actually looks like. The New Testament church shows us that it is not natural for the multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual church to come together, and that it absolutely requires Holy Spirit empowerment to bring it about. So what happens when tension hits the church? I'm glad that Paul didn't give up. 
I'm glad that James didn't give up. I'm glad they persisted. And there is only one thing that bound them together, but it was the one thing that mattered most. They were believers. They believed in Jesus, they believed in Jesus, and they believed in Jesus, and they believed in Jesus, and this commitment to belief in Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, is what bound them together despite all other obstacles. What if we practiced unity by digging in? Paul, James, and the church demonstrate how to be unity makers. This passage is full of opportunities for conflict. And over and over again, we see Paul and James wrestling through some of these things to try to figure out, okay, how do we bring people together? How do we bring unity? How do we listen and how do we support and how do we bring people together in unity? There are three unity opportunities in this passage that I want to briefly address and then four lessons for how, to, how we can be unity makers. So here's the first unity opportunity, number one. The first is the one we mentioned earlier that happened in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. They called together the Jerusalem Council. In today's passage, Acts 21-25, James is saying, As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And so what they're doing back in Acts chapter 15 is all the leaders come together and they say, we understand that Paul is all about mission and he is reaching people. He is reaching people that we used to think didn't belong in the gathering of believers. But he's doing it. And the other side says, and we recognize that you care about the law because righteousness matters. Like, there is a level of holiness that God is working out in people, and, and so we want people to become more righteous and more godly. And so the Jerusalem Council is recognizing the tensions of these things and determining what is essential for salvation and what is, what is part of just growing as a believer. And so they're having these really difficult, in-depth conversations, and they end up with these four things that we just read about. And th these four things aren't rules that, gent that the Gentiles have to follow in order to have salvation. The four rules were to promote righteousness and build unity between the Jew and Gentile Christians. This was an attempt at developing unity. So how to be a unity maker, number one. Discern with the church God's truth, not just your opinion. If everybody had just been focused on their own opinion, this group would have had that opinion, and that group would have had another opinion. But instead, they did the hard work of coming together and saying, Jesus, what are you doing in us? Jesus, how are you leading us? And so what they did is they listened with each other. And the phrase in the church if you could pull that point back up there. It says, discern with the church God's truth. That's in parentheses for the sake of emphasis because the discernment is not about your best thinking or your best creative ideas. The, church, the body of the church has been given so that we can have greater understanding. They came up with a better plan together than they were doing separately. And so having discernment, seeking wisdom, understanding what truth is, is we listen to the body of believers. This is not your own idea of your own sense of it's a good idea or not. 
And anything like this will always line up with Scripture. If it doesn't align with Scripture, if it's not completely in alignment with Scripture, it's not God's truth. So if, we, if you want to be a unity maker, you're going to seek to discern God's truth, not just your own opinion, because most of the time, it's our own opinions that are causing the division. Unity opportunity number two. We have this giving and receiving of a special offering. Now let me talk about this, because some of you are thinking, we just read that passage in Acts 21, and I didn't see anything about an offering. Well, that's because we have to read that passage in the context of the whole book of Acts and in the context of the New Testament of what's going on. And we know from the rest of Scripture the bigger picture of what's going on here. There, as I mentioned before, had been a famine in, in Jerusalem. There had been persecution. And the, the people in Jerusalem were struggling. The Christians, in particular, were struggling. It had been a very, very difficult time. And so Paul had, one of the things he'd been doing in Europe and Asia and all of his travels is he had been receiving a collection of funds, a special offering to bring back to the Jerusalem church in order to help them. So he's been traveling around all this time doing that job. That's why he has so many people traveling with him, is when churches, these newly, he'd start these churches, these are new believers, and he's teaching them about, about giving and sharing and, and giving generously to people in need. And when he would receive an offering, you know, back in these days, you couldn't just like wire the money or send the money over the internet or put it in the bank. You literally took that money and handed it to Paul. And so, so that people would trust him and know that he wasn't mismanaging money, he would take a representative from that church to then travel with him and watch over that portion of the money. It was also dangerous to travel with a lot of money. And so having this group of people who were providing, uh, who were just verifying, standing up for uh, Paul's integrity and who were pr protecting the money, they, they all helped to make sure that the offering was being delivered safely. So what's happening here when they're arriving in Jerusalem is one of the things going on is these Gentile churches and their offering is being given to the church in Jerusalem. Now that sounds nice, but it's a little bit of a funny power dynamic, right? Because here in the Jerusalem church, you have the mothers and the fathers of the faith. You've got the apostles You've got the famous people in the Bible that you've read about. You've got, I mean, these are like the big wigs of Christianity. These are the first, these are the most mature Christian believers. And here you have these other people who are mostly Gentiles who are helping the Jews that were supposed to have it all together. So there's this interesting power dynamic going on, and there's this question of, are we going to humble ourselves enough to let those Gentiles help us? And they have the question of, are we going to be generous with these Jews who've been pretty snooty in the past and, sh and excluded us? And are we going to be generous and just give? We're not used to being generous. We're used to being focused on using our money for ourselves. There's lots of Paul in the New Testament talking in lots of different epistles to this church and that church saying, I want you to give. In some churches he says, thank you for giving so generously. In other churches he says, you have not given very generously. Other churches did better than you. And he tells them that. But there's, there's been this whole journey of this collection, and, and now these two groups are coming together. So how do we be a unity maker? Number, number two, you've got to recognize that discipleship involves your money. And we need to be generous. When we are being shaped 
when God is making us new, when God is making us like him, it is absolutely going to affect our money and our stuff and our possessions. God doesn't just take the spiritual part of you and change that part. He wants holistic change, body, mind, and soul. And that, that gets to one of the deepest areas of our life. Probably money and sexuality are the two biggest things and that, that hit us deeply that we think are personal and that other people don't need to mess with. And God is saying, nope, I've got standards for those things and I have a certain way of life that I want you to live according to. And so he's teaching, the Gentiles are, are learning this lesson, discipleship involves giving. Discipleship involves generosity. Discipleship means God owns everything I have, including all my money. And then the third way to be a unity maker is a lesson that the Jews, that the, the church in Jerusalem is learning. Number three, humble yourself to not always have to be in the position of strength. They're used to being the big guys, you know? I mean, they're, they're the ones who sent out the missionaries in the first place. These are the spiritual fathers. The thing is, is to accept the Gentiles' gift meant that they were accepting the Gentiles. Have you ever had a child come and give you a gift that maybe wasn't like such a great gift? But you don't say, I don't want that. No, you receive the gift because you know it's given as an act of love and you, by receiving that gift, you're receiving them. And you say, thank you, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And the, 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 the Jerusalem church is in this process of saying, we'll receive it. You have something to give us. You have something to give us. We're not all that. Sure, we've been Christians longer than you, but maybe you've got some maturity to share with us. Maybe we need to learn some things. And so being a unity maker absolutely involves humility. And it's going to hit us in ways we don't want it to. Philippians talks about how Jesus, though he was God, did not cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the form of a servant. Even Jesus put on this incredible humility. And the path for us as unity makers and as believers in Jesus is to consistently choose the low path, to consistently choose the place of humility, saying, I might not have all the answers. To be a leader who leads courageously but says, but I might not be all that. Others have something to give me, too. Humble yourself to not always have to be in a position of strength. Then there's the third unity opportunity, the third and final opportunity, and that is this whole Jewish vow thing. That there's this unity opportunity of how are we going to handle this vow thing? Are we going to make Paul be part of this vow, and how is that all going to pan out? So James says there's this problem here, and, and Paul, the way that you can fix this problem is to show your solidarity with the Jews and show that you're not a problem with them, and, uh, and you can prove to the Jews that you're not anti the law. You, know, you can kind of be a bridge builder in this way. And we call this the weaker brother principle. The fourth way of how to be a unity builder is to be gentle toward your weaker brother. Be gentle toward your weaker brother. Now what they're saying here is that these Jews who are zealous for the law, they're the weaker brother because they haven't been set free from the bondage of the law. 
like Paul knows and those who are a little bit more mature in the faith know you don't have to do all that lost stuff in order to be a faithful believer to Jesus. But they're still struggling with that. And so James says this is going to help them come along. They're the weaker brother in this case, and let's help the weaker brother. Church, I just want to paint a picture of how our culture tells us to handle these sorts of things. Our culture tells us that if there is a matter of justice, if somebody is wrong, that we need to loudly confront that and say, I am going to stand up against that. What the early church, what Paul could have done with his group of Gentiles, his Gentiles and Jews that he was traveling with, they could have banded together in self-righteousness and they are committed to justice and they could have marched over to those Jews who were zealous for the law and they could have said, you are so legalistic, you are just committed to that law, I'm going to show you how the scriptures tell you that this is not what it's all about and we are going to stand up because see my Gentile brothers right here, where I'm, we, are, we are okay and we don't have to do all that stuff that you're saying. They could have said that and they wouldn't have been wrong. They would have been saying true words. But that's not the method they adopt. The method they adopt is one of bridge building. The method they adopt is one of unity making. And they, they're saying, we see our weaker brother over here. We'll help him. We'll help them. And then over time, we'll see if we can help them change. This is mature and complex work. We talk about DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion. There are lots of different things that we could, we could say about that, but we care about building bridges and building multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-economic relationships, and there are things that we can do. But this is a much more mature way, much more complex way of approaching the diversity talk than I think what our culture typically seeks to shape us to do. There is a mutuality, a mutual respect. There is, a, there is circumstantial nuances that they take into account. They're also paying attention to all the different power dynamics that are at play. They're recognizing there's some power dynamics here and there's some power dynamics here. And it's not just the loudest or strongest person wins the argument. It's we're recognizing there are some tensions here and so instead of just making some blanket decisions, we're going to engage in some hard conversations. So often today, our work that we do as Christians regarding multi-ethnic unity is often neither clear nor kind nor unifying. And we get focused on championing a cause rather than championing people. And we get focused on the ideas and the numbers rather than the people coming together in unity. There's honestly a reason why. It's because this is harder. It's more complicated. It takes more maturity. It takes a lot more time. And it just takes effort to figure these things out together. But the early church here is living out this dynamic of Holy Spirit grace. They're seeking the Holy Spirit. They're seeking the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is giving them grace to build bridges, to build unity, to work through these things, to legitimately consider the multiple perspectives that are at play, both the truth and the, the little bit of correction that might be needed, and is seeking to build bridges. 
And so Paul talks about the weaker brother idea in 1 Corinthians 8. And I think this is such a great passage for us to pay attention to for this particular story today. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthians. And they're talking about this Jewish law thing about eating food sacrificed to idols and how the Jews had this law about you, you can't eat food sacrificed to the idols. And the Gentiles are like, that's not a problem for us. Like, we don't have a conviction <laughs> about that. Like, we don't, we're not worshiping we're not worshiping those idols anymore, so that doesn't matter to us. And so they had this discussion about that. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Paul says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Verse 7. But not everyone knows this. That's maturity and that's kindness. Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, and no better if we do. Listen to this. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Let me read that again. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Verse 19, though I am free, chapter 9, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul champions truth many times and in many ways, and he does so boldly and clearly, and there's certainly a time for that, absolutely. But here we see him in this unity-building, unity-making, bridge-building moment, having this weaker brother argument, saying, let's pull people together. If I have to give up a preference, I can do that. If I have to give up a preference on the other side, I can do that. The whole point is reaching people. The whole point is coming together. Let's major on the majors and let the minor things be minor. And he says, let's work it out. Let's hit the big things and let's figure them out. So point number four, how to be a unity maker, is to be gentle toward your weaker brother. Here's what's been going on in the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts has been about spreading God's good news from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the far parts of the earth. The whole book of Acts has been 
the making of God's multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual church. It's this incredible, incredibly different group of people coming together. So many languages, so many cultures, so many traditions. And today's passage just camps on the messiness and intensity of it. You've got James struggling over here with the church in Jerusalem, and you've got Paul struggling over here with the the Greek-speaking Christians who are from everywhere, from all over the place. And then not only these tensions, but the outside attackers coming in and attacking both groups and being a problem everywhere. There's a lot going on. And church is complicated and church is messy. And yet the thing that holds everybody together is they're believers. And because they're believers, they say, let's try to figure this out. I'm a believer. You're a believer. Can we figure this out? I'm a believer. You're a believer. Can we figure this out? We're believers and you're believers, and I know we're not close together, but we've got some things we've got to figure out. Can we have a Jerusalem council and can we figure it out? Let's be unity makers. Let's be bridge builders. Let's be actively involved in building unity. Let's not just hope it happens passively somewhere. It's, we know the ways of the world are not toward unity. The ways of the world are separation. And it takes a move of the Holy Spirit to call people into the kind of unity that only can come through shared belief in Jesus and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so, church, if we are seeking to truly be church people participating in God's church made up of all kinds of crazies like you and me, all kinds of different people from all kinds of backgrounds, I think we have to ask, will we be be quitters or will we be unity makers? Will we let the church body influence our discernment? If we don't, we're going to be in one of these camps and we're going to have that opinion or the, the Judaizer opinion or this Greek opinion. But if we participate in letting the Holy Spirit influence our discernment, we're going to listen to the church. And when the church tells you, hey, that's not a good idea, are you going to say, I know better? I know how to live the right way. I know what righteousness is. Or are you going to listen to your church? Listen to the scriptures and let the church help form you according to the word of God. We recognize that discipleship and following Jesus is going to affect you financially. Jesus wants all of you. Jesus wants your whole self. And he wants to get at the heart of who you are, which is going to involve your money. It's a big part of your life. Will you humble yourself? Some of you here have been Christians for a long time. Some of you read the whole Bible through more than once. Some of you know all the stories. I think it'd actually be awesome if every time you come to church, you're always familiar with the passage. Wouldn't that be cool? Some of you know a lot and have been around a lot and have seen a lot. And especially to you, the question is, can you humble yourself to not always be in charge, to admit you're wrong, to, to say you're willing to grow, to do things a little differently. And then the final question is, 
Can we be gentle with our weaker brother? Yes, there is a time for a firm and clear comment. But sometimes there's space to say, I can, I can help you out. Let me help you out here. And let's pursue Jesus together. When people are wrong, when people are misguided, we're going to be facing a, a political election in our nation. A, a year from now, we're going to be in the thick of it. When other people are wrong, can you be a bridge builder? When other people are saying the wrong thing, that they have, you have this opinion about Scripture and you're convinced that they're wrong, can you be a bridge builder? Will you seek unity? Let's be unity makers. Jesus, we know that this church is your church. It's not my church, it's not our church, it's your church. And we want nothing more than for you to have full reign of being in charge of it, Jesus. And Lord, we don't know all the things that we will face in our future as a church. You've brought us through so far by faith, and it has been our belief in you that has helped us through. But Jesus, as we look ahead, we can't imagine our future, but we look to you. Say, Jesus, build us, make us into bridge builders, make us into unity makers. Help us to have courage to do the hard things, to enter into the difficult conversations, to be willing to experience persecution that comes from following you, to be willing to say, everything I have, I'm surrendered to you, God. All I am, who I am, what I have, I'm fully available to you, God. God, bless City Life and give us the gift of taking us deeper. Make us unity makers, we pray. Amen.